Open your Bible to James chapter 3. This will be uh, where we will uh, start today as we work our way through this little letter, the book of James, James chapter 3. And uh, we'll go through the first uh, 12 verses today. So as we get ready to, uh, to go through James chapter 3, I want to, I want to just give a really brief overview of, um, of this little letter. I know we've already started. We're right in the middle of it. But as James is writing this letter, James, it, along with all the other apostolic writers, so all the... All the letters in our New Testament uh, really are designed to do the same thing. The writers of those letters, the writers of Scripture are writing to encourage and to equip the brethren towards spiritual maturity in Christ for the purpose of fulfilling what Christ has commanded us to do, specifically the Great Commission. So the point of James's letter is not just so people feel secure about one day going to heaven when they die. The point of this letter is that the church would be actively building up one another in love in order to obey Christ, to fulfill the Great Commission, to disciple the nations, and to fill the world with the image and the glory of God. Or we could say it like this, the way Jesus taught us to pray, that we would pray therefore also work to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as James wrote in chapter 1, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, he's pointing us to the goal of that high calling of being fully conformed to the image of Christ. And we see this theme throughout the five chapters of the book of James. The point of spiritual maturity is our obedience to God for his purposes in the earth. So in James chapter 1, for instance, we see that spiritual maturity develops through our response to suffering. In James chapter 2, we see that spiritual maturity is enhanced by our faithful response to God's word. Not just hearers, but doers. In James chapter 3, the chapter we're going to begin today, we see how the use of our tongue gives evidence to spiritual maturity. How we use this indicates whether we are or whether we are not spiritually mature. Over a long period of time or, or in a moment, we can all become childish in moments of frustration or anger and let our tongue get out of control. That's not spiritual maturity. James chapter 4. We see that humility nurtures godly character in spiritual maturity. And finally, in James chapter 5, we're going to see how patient, persevering with prayer will yield a harvest of mature spiritual fruit. So your spiritual fruit is just like any other kind of fruit. You know, you pick the peaches off your tree when the fruit is mature. You don't pick little bitty green peaches and say, mmm, that tastes so good, because it doesn't. So the goal is 
mature fruit in our lives. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. For the purpose of not just us getting to heaven one day, but more importantly, for the purpose of the work God has called us to do here on this earth. And then one day when we are called to our uh, eternal reward, God will say, enter in my good and faithful servant. So today we begin James chapter 3 and we're going to look at the tongue and its power in relation to spiritual maturity in the life of the believer. Our text is James chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed And has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. This is the word of the Lord. In these 12 verses, we will see specifically how James characterizes the tongue and the challenge it presents in relation to our spiritual maturity and the edification of the church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you that you have left us your word, not just in a written form, but you have written it upon our hearts. And by your spirit, you illuminate that word, you empower that word, and you grace us to be able to walk in obedience to that word. Father, help us to be a people who walk in obedience to your word, who speak your word. Lord, a people from whose tongue life comes, not death, not cursing. Father, we thank you that you will be glorified through your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at four areas um, in these 12 verses. 
the difficulty of taming the tongue, <clears throat> the power of the tongue, the disproportionate power of the tongue, the destruction that comes from the tongue, and the dual nature or the inconsistency of the tongue. We'll bring all this together as we look to Christ as our example of one who demonstrated how our tongues are to be used for God's glory, for God's purpose, for the building up of the church, that God's name would be glorified. The difficulty of taming the tongue. James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. James is exhorting the brethren. So James has consistently done this throughout his letter. He is reminding us who he's writing to. He's writing to the brethren. He begins this chapter with these words, My brethren. So James is addressing the church. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. If you pay attention as you read your, your, your Bible, in particular the epistles, the letters, uh, they're addressed to the believers. Paul's not writing to the world. James is not writing to the world. Peter's not writing to the world. Luke's not giving a record for those in the world. He's giving a record for those in the church. And the exhortation here is to the church, my brethren, to those who profess faith in Christ. Now, James is not so naive, and neither are we to believe that everybody who comes to a church, who comes to a worship service, who even professes faith in Christ, we, we're not so naive to believe that they actually are. We don't know. We can't see into, person, into a person's heart. Only God knows that person's heart. But when someone professes Christ, we take them at their word and we treat them accordingly as a Christian, as a member of the covenant. And so James is writing to this church. And obviously there's some issues to the group he's writing to because he's dealing with some things here we're going to look at in chapter 3. So it's important to remember because Christians face the same temptations as those out in the world. The difference is that we know better and we have the power and the grace of God in Jesus Christ to overcome those temptations, to overcome those sins that beset us. His address to the brethren includes a warning. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. James issues this warning because he knows the difficulty of taming the tongue. In fact, James reminds us in verse 7 and 8 that every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So not only is the tongue, tongue difficult to, to tame, James says no man can tame it. Thus the warning here is for those brethren who become teachers. Teachers use their tongue a lot. Some of you are going, amen, brother, I know. I, every week I, I realize that as I'm watching the clock. You use your tongue a lot. Which means there is also great opportunity to misuse our tongue. And I do that a lot too. We who become teachers in the body of Christ shall receive a greater judgment. The Greek word here is where we get our word mega from. 
Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a mega judgment. That's literally what, what it says. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that our judgment will be more strict, will be greater. So that's sobering for anyone called a teacher in the body of Christ. The writer of Hebrews confirms this. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That For that would be unprofitable for you. Not every teacher is a shepherd or a pastor. But every pastor is a shepherd. And every pastor and shepherd is a teacher. So James is giving a warning to those who are teachers, pastors, shepherds. He's giving a warning to teachers, whether they're pastors and shepherds or not. The writer of Hebrews gives a warning to the brethren under the watch of their shepherds, reminding them that the pastors, the elders, the teachers must give an account to God for their shepherding and for their teaching. This should give all of us pause concerning our responsibility, both shepherds and sheep. When your pastors check on you to see where and how you are, It is out of concern for your soul and because God has commanded that we give an account. A good shepherd can account for his sheep. That is a foreign concept in much of the modern church. Thus the problems we see in our culture. But God requires his shepherds to give an account. That means there will be a greater or more strict judgment of shepherds and teachers than will be applied to others. We all stumble in many things. James wrote those words. We all stumble in many things, in no small part, because the tongue is difficult to tame. In verse 2, James uses the pronoun we to include himself in admitting that we all stumble in many things. Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. But James did not come to faith in Christ until after the Lord's resurrection. In Mark 3.21, we see the family of Jesus thinking that Jesus is out of his mind. In John 7.5, John records that even his brothers did not believe in him. So James wasn't always a Christian. In fact, during his brother's life and earthly ministry, he was not. But after the resurrection, James came to faith in Christ and became... Uh, the leader, along with Peter, of the Jerusalem church. James admits that we all stumble in many things. He is including himself in this indictment. It's not far-fetched to think that James uttered things with his tongue in his unbelief concerning Jesus that he would not have otherwise spoken if his tongue had been bridled by faith. In that regard, perhaps, it was not hard for James to relate firsthand Concerning the difficulty of taming the tongue. Certainly we too can relate to the difficulty of taming the tongue. For we all face this challenge every day. James continues in verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle the whole body. James is saying that the man who is able to bridle his tongue 
is a perfect man. The man who is able to bridle his tongue is a perfect man who is able to also bridle the whole body. In other words, James is pointing out that it's easier to bridle the rest of the body than it is to bridle the tongue. And if you can bridle your tongue, then you have the self-control to bridle your whole body. This highlights for us the difficulty of taming the tongue. One thing we know, there are no perfect people. Would you agree? All of us experience in small and great ways the difficulty of taming our tongue. James is reminding us that we all stumble in word and just how powerful the tongue is and how difficult it is to tame. Considering the size of the tongue in relation to the rest of the body, the tongue is disproportionately powerful. We must not disregard our small but powerful tongue. To do so is more than a mistake. It is actually a sin for which we must repent and deal with such sin. The disproportionate power of the tongue is something that is real. So in James 3, 3 through 5, James uses the metaphors of a horse's bridle, of a ship's rudder, to help us understand the disproportionate power, that small member we call the tongue, the the power the tongue has. He also uses the picture of what a great fire a little one may ignite. A bridle is just a small piece of metal that goes in the mouth of a great horse. That small piece of metal allows the rider to turn the whole body of the horse, whichever direction he, he chooses to turn it. The same is true for a ship's rudder. When you consider how much larger the body of a great ship is than the small rudder that guides it, that turns it, that directs it, just like the bridle and just like the rudder, the same is true for a little fire that can ignite an entire forest. James uses these word pictures to help us understand how powerful our tongue is, that small member in our mouth, how much power it has. This is the disproportionate power of the tongue. Such a small member can cause such great problems and bring such great destruction. As it is for the horse with the bridle and the ship with the rudder, so it is for us and our tongue. If we are not careful, our small tongue has the power to ignite a great flame of destruction. We saw an example of that this week with the deadly wildfire in Hawaii. The extremely swift and complete destruction pictured in an out-of-control wildfire is exactly what James is picturing for us here to help us understand the disproportionate power of our tongue. Whether we bridle our tongue or not determines much about our spiritual course and our maturity in Christ. James has already made reference to the bridle earlier in his letter in James Chapter 1, verse 26, James writes, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. If anyone among you thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. 
In other words, there is great power in our small tongue. How we use the power of the tongue will make our being religious a blessing or a curse for ourselves and for those around us. James is pulling from the wisdom of the Proverbs as he writes concerning the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18.21. Solomon writes, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. What fruit do you love to eat? Do you love the fruit of death or do you love the fruit of life? Your tongue has the power for both. And you determine what fruit you love to eat. The fruit of death or the fruit of life. Your tongue has the power. Bridle your tongue for life, then love it and eat its fruit. Otherwise, destruction awaits. It's not accidental that through words God spoke the world into existence. Jesus is called the living word that was with God in the beginning. And he is the word that is God. That word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And now he has given to us his word. He has given to his church his word. He has written it on our hearts for it. To come out of our mouth and our whole being, not just our mouth, but our hands and our feet and our entire body. We are to use his word with our tongue for his glory and not for destruction. We must bridle our tongue and guard our mouth so that we do not boast great things to our destruction and the destruction of others. But to life and edification for the building up of the body, for the glory of Christ. James, in this letter, is focused on the power of destruction that the tongue has because he is obviously bringing correction to the church, to the believers he's writing to. James chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. James likens an unbridled tongue to a fire out of control. James calls it a world of iniquity. You've probably experienced that painful reality of a tongue on fire and out of control. Creating a world of iniquity and destruction. Unfortunately, that is too common in the Lord's church. I hear horror stories. I have lived horror stories. That tongue out of control a world of iniquity, on fire, that may have been your tongue. That may have been your own tongue. That may have been someone else's tongue directed towards you. Thus we are to guard our tongues, for the tongue has the power to preserve life or the power to bring death and destruction. Proverbs 13.3 He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. It's a picture that we need to measure what we say. And that is very often easier said than done. The tongue is set among our members in such a way that it has the power to defile the whole body and set on fire our natural course. That is the destructive power of an unbridled tongue. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is not true at all. 
The words that come out of your mouth have much greater power, much greater harm than sticks or stones could ever have. I believe James is writing to remind us of the power of our words for death and for life. James taught the same. Listen to his words. Jesus taught the same. Listen to his words. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. But I say to you that for every idle word, this is one of the scariest scriptures in the Bible to me. Listen to the words of Jesus. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Never believe the lie that your words are not powerful, for they are. They are more powerful than you realize. Our enemy knows this better than we know it ourselves. That's why we are so very often tempted with words. Words were used by God for creation and glory. And words were used by the serpent for sin and death. Words were used to tempt Eve in the garden. Those words pulled on the lust of her flesh, the lust of her eyes, and the pride of life. And we fall prey to the very same temptations today through words. Words can be spoken out loud or words can be spoken in our heart and in our mind. Words can lead us astray. It could be the pride of life that causes you to rise up with words of offense Or defense. Like Eve, we can be tempted to give place to seducing words. We're tempted to utter words from an unbridled tongue driven by lust. That is the destructive power of the tongue. And this is why James informs us in verse 6 that our tongue is set on fire by hell. Think of the ways in your own life. And through the course of time, think of ways the enemy has used an unbridled tongue to bring about defilement and to set on fire the course of nature and produce a world of iniquity. We see this occur on a personal scale in in our most intimate relationships. And we see it in larger scale at every level across our culture and across the world. Literal wars are started because of men's tongues. We see this very thing taking place all around us. The destruction brought by the tongue is rampant in our culture at this very moment. I believe it is rampant in the church at this very moment. As believers, we need to take heed that it does not become rampant in our own lives and so in the Lord's church. The tongue we see being used to bring so much destruction was created by God for the purpose of bringing life and making disciples of Christ. We are commanded to do this by the spoken word of God through the gospel. This is the life-giving power of the tongue. We must bridle our tongues to keep our own course from being set on fire by hell. We are to take our bridled tongue And use it to speak life. If we do not properly bridle our tongue by faith, by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit. If we do not properly 
bridle our tongue, the fire it sets will burn up more than we might imagine. In the process, it will also create a place for the enemy to gain an even greater foothold in our families and in the church. We can prevent that as our faithful obedience to God and his word becomes the bridle and the guard for our tongue, for our mouths, that is directing our course, bringing life instead of death. James reminds us that every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. If that is true, and it is, what hope do we have to tame our tongues? If James couldn't do it, if those men of old could not do it, how on earth can we tame the tongue? The answer is we have no hope of taming the tongue. The scripture is clear. No man can tame the tongue. It is an untamable evil full of deadly poison. What is the answer then? Well, the answer is not to tame the tongue. The answer is to crucify the tongue. If you try to tame your tongue, you you will fail. But if you settle that the only solution is that my tongue be crucified, and if my tongue be crucified, let my whole body be crucified. The cross is the only answer we have for the tongue. The cross is the only answer we have for any and all of our sin and flesh and carnality of mind and body. It is simple. The tongue must be crucified. That is how man bridles his tongue. To crucify the tongue is to crucify the whole body. We must apply the cross and crucify that untamable evil that is the tongue. And in doing that, we will bring our whole body under control. The man who bridled his tongue has also bridled his whole body because the man who bridled his tongue is the man who crucified his tongue. And in crucifying his tongue, he has crucified his whole body. The very nature of the tongue makes it difficult to tame. It is disproportionately powerful, unbridled. It is destructive, and it possesses a deadly inconsistency that we must recognize. And this inconsistency, this dual nature is something that must not be ignored. In James chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, James addresses the deadly inconsistency of the tongue. We all have fallen prey to this inconsistency. Remember, Proverbs 18, 21 teaches us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. That means it has the power to be used as an instrument to bring life or an instrument to bring death. James writes, with it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, 9, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. That is a deadly inconsistency. I say one thing with my mouth, but I do another thing with my body and with my actions. Blessing and cursing must not proceed from the same mouth. James is clear this must not be so. Men are already cursed in their sin and separation from Christ. Even when they revile us, we are called to bless men, not to further curse them. James then gives another metaphor to help us understand. 
A spring cannot bring forth fresh and bitter water at the same time, from the same opening. The fig and the olive tree both bear fruit consistent with the root, as does the grapevine. Fig trees do not produce olives, olive trees do not produce figs, and grapevines produce only grapes. And so no spring will yield both salt and fresh water simultaneously. It will be one or the other. So it is for us in Christ. Our tongues are to bless and not to curse. In Christ, we have been made a new creation to produce the fruit of the Spirit. and That is the fruit of blessing, the fruit of righteousness, and the fruit of life. Not the fruit of cursing or sin or death. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, the true vine. And he goes on to say, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. In the new birth, in the place of abiding in him, you are to produce fruit consistent with Christ, who is now your life. We are no longer to to be double-minded, tossed to and fro. Instead, we are to be consistent in our faith, And in our witness to Christ, if you are a branch abiding in Christ and his life is flowing through you, then your life will show the fruit of the spirit as an expression of his life in both word and deed. The spirit's fruit is to be visible in your actions. It is to be audible in your speech like a fountain of living water. What is to flow from your mouth is the blessing associated with a heart and a tongue transformed by the truth of the gospel. James knew this is a difficult challenge because no man can tame the tongue. That is not an excuse. That is the truth that sets us free. That truth that the tongue is impossible to tame points us to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus died so that we too could die and be raised in his resurrection life. In the cross, we are crucified with Christ, and that includes our tongue. So we are to crucify our tongue again and again and again and again until it is bridled and ready to be used in its power for life and blessing, for good and glory. The good is for us and the glory is for God. The good that God wants to come from our tongue is for us. But the glory is His because it is only by His grace It is only by the work of the cross that this can be accomplished. It is impossible for us, but what is impossible for man is possible for God. So don't look at the impossibility. Don't look at the difficulty. Don't look at how many times you fail. Look to Christ and know that he is your victory. Look to Christ and know that in your failure, in your weakness, the word says, Jesus said, I am strong. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. We are to be reminded regularly that our invitation to this table has nothing to do with what we have done, 
but only what Christ has done for us that we could never do ourselves. This is a table of pure, sovereign grace. This is a thanksgiving table. We come to give thanks to God for sending His Son. We thank the Son for giving up His body and pouring out His blood. We thank the Spirit for applying that finished work to our lives and making us children of God. With our tongues, we have responded to His call. We have confessed our sin and received His pardon. We have consecrated. We've been consecrated by His grace and now and by His Word. And now we come to commune with Him at His table, to be renewed and refreshed in His new covenant with bread and wine, being prepared to be charged and commissioned to go forth in His name, proclaiming the good news with the power of life on our tongues. Christian, welcome to His table. You all are welcome, whether you are members of this congregation or not. If you count yourself a member of the body of Christ, you are welcome to this table. We will all be served and then we will eat and we will drink together. Christian, welcome to his table and welcome to Jesus. Please rise for your charge. Jesus is Lord of all and your example. But before he can be your example, he must be your savior. He's already your Lord, whether you realize it or not. If Jesus is your Savior, you've been crucified with Him, and that includes your tongue. Thus, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And if Christ lives in you, it must be Christ that is dictating what comes off your tongue and out of your mouth. Christ in you is the power to crucify and to bridle your tongue. You are charged to put off the old man and to put on the new. And bridling your tongue is part of your sanctification. The cross is how to bridle. The cross is how the bridle is applied. And it is the spirit that is to be guiding us. Sanctification applies to our mouth and specifically to our tongue. It is not only what and how we speak, but when we speak. Bridling or crucifying your tongue is as much about knowing when to remain silent as it is about what and how we speak. We must be willing to hear, but more specifically, we must be willing to listen. Sinclair Ferguson says this about the relationship between the heart and the tongue. The tongue has no ears. It is the heart that has ears. And as the heart hears with open ears the word of God again and again and again and again, The transformed heart begins to produce a transformed tongue. Your single most important aid to your ability to use your tongue for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for power, for building up, for conquering our enemies. The single most important aid is to allow the word of God to dwell in you so richly that you speak with no other accent but the accent of heaven. That is a work of grace that comes from much trial and error and not without suffering. That good news is that his grace, the good news is that his grace is sufficient. And when we are weak, He is strong. Don't forget that, Christian.
May we bridle our tongues for the building up of one another in love, for the proclamation of the gospel in power, for the making of his disciples in truth, and for the glory of God and his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.